Are you living your academic journey courageously? Before Dr. Mary Hemphill became the Director of Academic Standards for the North Carolina Department of Education, she was a passionate and innovative principal. Before that, she was an assistant principal with the courage to stand up for her convictions. The assistant principalship is loaded with values conflicts. How do you stay true to your values amidst complex power dynamics and competing interests? Mary helps us figure it all out in this week's episode. Hello, colleagues, and welcome to the Assistant Principal Podcast. I'm your host, Frederick Buskey. The goal of this podcast is to help improve the life and leadership of assistant principals. This podcast complements APEX, the Assistant Principal Acceleration Program, but you certainly don't need to be an APEX member to find value in the podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Mary Hemphill, the Director of Academic Standards for the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction. Mary's here with us today to help us stay true to our values and to act in ways that are consistent with them. Hello, Mary. Hi, it's so great to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so it's confession time for me. Okay. I hold you in such high regard. I was afraid to ask you onto the podcast in case you said no. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's an honor to be here. <laughs> well, I know it sounds silly, but you're such a remarkable leader and you really inspire me. Thank you so much, Dr. Rusty. Likewise, likewise. So we go way back and I'd love to share everything I know about you with the audience, but today I'm going to share two stories, one now and one later. I remember the first time we met, I think it was, you were in one of the first cohorts of our redesigned principal licensure program at Western Carolina University, maybe 2008. Yeah. And I, I remember you walking in the door and immediately was struck by your presence. Your smile lit up the room. You put me at ease. And at the same time, you carried yourself with such just confidence and purpose. 13 years later, those things haven't changed but many other things have. So can you tell us briefly how you got to where you are today? Absolutely. So I will say that that program, when challenging us to understand who we are as leaders, I think was the cornucopia of my administrative experience and being able to have the opportunity to go into the assistant principalship with that voice was definitely something that I shared with all of my colleagues. But after that program, I had the amazing opportunity to serve as assistant principal in Iredell Statesville. And I had gone from elementary to high school. And to be honest, there were some days where I thought, okay, these are really big children and perhaps I need to like take a step back. But it was amazing because I believe when you diversify the grade levels that you're able to serve, it's one thing to teach third grade reading, but it's another thing to see what happens with students right before they graduate and go out into the real world and understand that there's still foundational skills that they still desperately need. And so I was able to not only serve at the high school level, but then I then left the high school and went on to become uh, the principal in Rowan Salisbury at an elementary school. And that was definitely a turnaround school. Having the opportunity to have students bust in from eight different communities across the county 
gave me a really good opportunity to see the realities that were facing students and their families that I had never been in before. So I think when it comes to just being blessed enough to serve low socioeconomic communities, affluent communities, rural communities and urban communities has been amazing. After that school, I was um, able to, I was recruited down to Scotland County um, and I was able to be at IEJ Elementary where two days before I was named principal, they found out from the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction that they were an F school. And it was the first school in the county to receive that designation. Um, you know, sometimes you, you don't know why you go through what you go through. And I know that my preparation prepared me for IEJ. That community embraced the change. They embraced the transition. It was the first time in my career I had asked for permission to innovate with my superintendent and with along with my students and their amazing families and our teachers we turned that school from an f school to a b school in two years and i went on to be able to loop my fifth graders my last year to become their middle school principal before i landed at the department of public instruction so the whole journey has been uh, a journey of faith but a journey where i have learned so much from the little people and the big people that i've had an amazing opportunity to lead alongside and you've hit the trifecta, elementary, middle, <laughs> high school. Yes, yes. Okay, yes. what's your favorite level? Mm, everybody always asks me that. And I always say I don't, I don't have a favorite. I have a favorite for different reasons. So elementary, they are still in love with learning and they just are embracing it. And I just love that you have the opportunity to mold them. Middle school, because sometimes I just couldn't, I can't believe my parents survived me being a middle school. <laughs> But when I tell you that they are so they're finding themselves, and so you get to be able to infuse different ideals and career paths in them. But high school, I have to say, was probably one of my favorite because to see them walk across the stage and for them to earnestly say, thank you, Dr. Hemphill, or thank you, Ms. Johnson, or thank you, Ms. Turnell, they really do mean it. And seeing that, there's nothing like that, the high school graduation day or the day that they sign or enlist, enroll or employ. And so high school has a special place in my heart for sure. Good. I think that's inspiring to a lot of uh, assistant principals in high schools right now who are probably planning yeah. for graduation amidst all of the other things. Yes. We always like to start with celebrations. So what are you celebrating today? Oh, I am absolutely celebrating the evolution of education. And not the revolution, because, you know, at the end of a revolution, you lose people. And we are doing everything we can right now because districts are hungry. Schools are hungry for what the now normal is going to look like. And I think that we have admired education for, for decades and asked, what would it be if we could work from home? What would it look like if we could innovate? And COVID gave us that opportunity. And people are so open to the idea that we can get rid of the box. And so again, before, I just don't think that the ecosystem was set for change and, you know, bucking, not necessarily bucking tradition, but just saying, how can we pivot the master schedule? How can we reach this, this subgroup of students? And so I'm absolutely celebrating evolution right now. And the fact that there are some fantastic educational leaders who are ready to lead the charge. Okay. I'll, I'll pencil in the second podcast that we do now. <laughs> so this podcast is built upon the principles of strategic leadership, 
prioritizing purpose over urgency, addressing mm-hmm. problems, not symptoms, driving incremental progress rather than big change, and focusing on people instead of tasks. And when it comes to today's topic, let's call it courage, this is all about our purpose. Being intentional about our purpose as educational leaders, keeping everyone safe and creating better opportunities for students by helping develop great teachers. It's a challenge because all of because of all of the urgent things. And not surprisingly, when we lose sight of our purpose and are driven by the urgent, that's when we're more prone to losing our way. Mary, let's start with what I think is the hardest question I'll ask you today. Was there a time that you failed to live up to your own values? What happened? And more importantly, why did it happen? Absolutely. Um, I think that I heard a great, great quote a couple of weeks ago, and I think it really describes the situation I was in. Whenever you put a good person in a bad system, the system will always win. And when you are an assistant principal, and particularly when you become a principal, you have to decide before you sign your contract, you have to decide before you interview what it is that you're willing, what hill do you want to die on? What do you want to fight for? Because when you're in the moment with a parent or a board member or superintendent, that is not the time to make those decisions. Um, I absolutely have had, um, in particular, I had a student, uh, they were five years old, and I remember it was afternoon dismissal. And this child, there's a, there's a, there's a scream that as administrators know, there's a scream of squealing and excitement. And there's a scream of like, I need help right now. And I knew it was the latter. <laughs> and I went out to the buses and I saw this five-year-old clinging to the leg of my media coordinator. And everyone was on the bus. Everyone was ready to go. And this child would not let go, no matter how much we coaxed him, how much we asked him. He said, please don't make me go home. Please don't make me go home. And so we had to send the bus on and we immediately got him into my office and we start talking to him. We called the school counselor. And after a couple of hours, it took about two or three hours for him to finally tell us that every day when he gets home, he is locked in a closet and not given any food. And he's five years old. And my heart was, I mean, bleeding for this child. And I will say that every great educator knows that moment where you just have to ask yourself, like, am I in a position to just adopt a child? Like today (laughs) is the day that I need to make that decision. When you understand, and my values for me were that I will always be a voice for the voiceless, which means I will not allow another human being to be taken advantage of if there is access and resources that I can bring in to help that human being. And once we called the social workers and they removed the child and they started doing the investigation. I had to make the very tough call about what was best for this child, not having any other family than this guardian. And in making that decision, I had to think about the short-term and the long-term impact. But I knew that that child not going home was psychologically going to be the best thing for him in his formidable years where he's, he's still a baby one of the toughest decisions I ever had to make because no child should be away from their parent. But if that is a situation where they're in danger, I absolutely had to make that call. And I know that I would have lost sleep if I didn't know before I became an assistant principal, that it was my duty to be able to stand in the gap for children. And I think those are the tough days that, you know, you don't have a methods course on, you don't have an evaluative course on, and you really have to like dig inside yourself and say what matters right now in this situation with this little person. 
Wow. Okay, we're going to end the podcast right there because <laughs> we have the two quotes already, right? It's evolution, not revolution, which will be part two of this thing. Um, but I, I love what you said is you have to know when you're in the interview or before you accept the job. Um, and if you compromise in the interview, you're going to compromise in the job. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Every time. And, and I know I always advise my students or former students that have gone through licensure program with me, you know, they'll call up and I'm trying to get a job. I'm trying to get a job. And it can be hard to make that leap from the classroom into that, for that first assistant principal job. Mm-hmm. And I always say, you have to be patient because the worst thing as a, as a new AP as an aspiring AP uh, is to jump into a situation that's toxic because you're, you know, it's hard already and it's not the busy stuff. It is, I think the spirit and, and your values that are going to suffer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agree. Every single time and safeguarding those things make you a better administrator. Yeah. Um, so let's dig in a little bit, I think, on how to do that. I do have the second story I want to tell. So I guess I'll tell that now and then let's kind of tear into okay. how do you how do you prep those values and, and stay strong in that as you move through. So mm-hmm. one of the reasons is uh, for this specific topic is the story that you shared with me years ago um, when you were early in your leadership career. And I'll tell it the way I remember it and then you can clean up the details. Okay. <laughs> So I think you were first year assistant principal. You witnessed a vest, a veteran teacher really laying into a student, being very disrespectful to the student, and then writing a referral on the kid when the student got disrespectful back. And as I remember it, the teacher gave you the referral and you just said, We're not, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to act on this. And again, this is a very senior principal, and you were a first or second year assistant principal. The teacher threatens to go to the principal and you just said, okay, you can go do that. So did I get the details right? If I missed something, (laughs) tell me. Um, And then tell us as that shiny brand new assistant principal and and you're fairly young for the position as well. Mm -hmm. How did you have that audacity and what were you thinking? Right. So I think when you are able to come back to education, having experienced just human beings in the world and knowing that the consequences of people's actions and what they've seen, their upbringing and core memories for them make them the adults that they are, that is where I found the audacity as a, I think I was a second year assistant principal. This was a highly coveted veteran principal who was highly respected within our community and district. However, what I kept seeing was a pattern of the same students in the office all the time. And when I started to calculate the loss of instructional time alongside our trend data, if students are not in the classroom, there is no way that they're gleaning the instruction that they need. More importantly, the number of low socioeconomic students we were seeing that year were all black and brown students and students of color but they were perpetuating and responding to the disrespect that they were first given. However, we as adults were turning right around and being punitive for something we were demonstrating ourselves. So for me, this wasn't about a a choice of whether or not to write that child up. For me, this was a culture choice. I was not brought into that school 
to, to be a disciplinarian. I was not brought in to do buses and I was not brought in to do, to do books. I was brought in to help with the culture. And the only way you can turn the culture around is when the adults are emulating and modeling for our students the type of behavior that we wanna see from amazing local and global citizens. So if I show you disrespect and then I get upset with you for showing me the skill that you have imparted onto me, that there, there's a there's that's coercive power there. And I knew that I was gonna be called in by my principal, but I felt like that as much as we tell teachers, take advantage of teachable moments. We need to tell administrators, take advantage of leadership moments like this to say, here is exhibit A, live in color, in technicolor happening. And this is eroding our culture. So either I can keep being reactive and chasing discipline notes, or we can be proactive and get in front of this and have a conversation with this teacher because that was one child who happened to be disrespectful back. What about the other 21 who knew enough, knew how to maneuver the system enough not to be disrespectful and not to let it get to a discipline report, but they were still, that was still a core memory for them. They still saw an adult being disrespectful. So what if they went out into the community and they are disrespectful to the wrong person, or maybe they got a job and they lost it because they were disrespectful to their boss. So sometimes as an assistant principal, you have to say, is sacrificing this one conversation with this one adult going to save 80 children and the rest of the staff? And if that's the case, I'm willing to go to bat for that because I have my data in order. I have good exemplars, but I also have a solution that's going to help us as a school overall. One of the, the the conversations that we've been having a lot lately with some of the, mm -hmm. the ACE, apex assistant principals mm -hmm. is how do I focus? Because we're always talking about instructional leadership. And mm -hmm. again, everybody's crazy. They got lots of hats and now we're moving into testing season and they're like, mm -hmm. ah, how am I going to go? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I'm going to take care. And, and we talk about all the different issues that are out there. But I think what it comes down to, one of the things I emphasize, if you're a busy assistant principal, like one teacher, one focus. Yeah. You can't, you can't coach three, let alone 30 teachers mm -hmm. at a time. And there's a lot of stuff you just have to let go of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can't get to that right now, but you have to identify the one. And I do think so many times the one is the one that's hurting kids. And yes. the one is where it's just an intolerable situation and not only for the kids, but that person. Cause if I'm a teacher and I'm disrespect, disrespecting kids every day, I'm hating my job. Right. right? Exactly. And exactly. Yeah. And, and so let's think about, uh, I'm that assistant principal. I see that teacher probably has, they may be experienced or they may be a lateral entry or a brand new mm -hmm. teacher. Right. But we know there's potential there, but they've just got it all backwards and they're hammering their kids. How do you start to approach that situation and bridge that with that teacher and start to, to get to that point where you guys are going to work together yes. to turn that ship around? Absolutely. So my two biggest things are that checklist will never grow teachers. It's conversations that grow teachers. 
And the other piece of that is really understanding and trying to figure out how to leverage those conversations in a way that removes excuses. Because angry, hurt educators are always going to search for an excuse as to why they are the way that they are. It can be resources. It could be lack of human capital. It can be that they don't have the training. So my approach as assistant principal, when, especially when I got um, over curriculum and instruction and I was able to really help with those evaluations, is I would make sure that I worked with the other assistant principals if I was in a high school or middle school setting, but definitely having these conversations with the school leader to say, we want to make sure that as assistant principals, instead of being busy, which means you have a mediocre list of things you want me to do, I want to be productive. And when I'm productive, I'm going to the hotspots and following the trend data. I'm supporting that specific teacher with data that's going to help us transform. So what did that look like? The first excuse is if a hurt teacher is hurting children is that, okay, well, yeah, I know Miss so-and-so does it down the hallway, but that we can't do that with our kids. Well, once I elevate the teacher down the hall that's doing it well, the classroom management has all of the materials management together, the culture in the classroom is phenomenal. I'm going to find ways to marry those skills with the teacher who is not doing that. What does that look like? Instead of coming in and saying, meet in my office after school for 20 minutes so that I can bash you about what you're not doing here and talking about these skills and checking this off. I want you to tell me 20 minutes where I can come into your classroom and cover your class. Mm. And then I want you to go to these teachers. Here's a list of teachers who are doing this well. And I want you to go in and I want you to find examples of wonderful classroom management, student teacher relationships, awesome opportunities to engage students in learning. And then when you come back, I want us to talk about what you saw. What that does is it takes the onus off of them, 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 them. And it partners them with professional experts in the building who are making it happen with students who may be in that teacher's classroom. And that removes the excuses. You're also saying, it's not that I don't trust that you can do it, but maybe you need an exemplar to hear, see, and feel it. And then when you come back, we're going to talk about how to make that happen in your classroom. I love this. And there's, uh, there's five points I want to, I want to bring out in, in what you said. Okay. So the, the first is the first thing is you, know, you talk about teachers being um, hurt and angry. And I would add probably fearful might be the, mm -hmm. the third one of those emotions. And so I think it really is critical when we see a teacher harming kids or sometimes just a teacher harming themselves or, or hating life we do have to think instead of bringing down the hammer, we have to think this is somebody that's hurt. This is mm -hmm. somebody that's angry. This is somebody that, that's fearful. And that's not the excuse, but it helps us set the frame of, Hey, I've got to go help this person. Right. And I would right. say too, as, as educational leaders in schools, like we have a moral obligation, not just to protect the kids, but also to take care of those teachers, because mm -hmm. I've seen too many times where, you have a school or principals turning over every two or three years, the teachers not getting their feedback. They're kind of going downhill slowly. They're 15 years in their profession. Mm -hmm. They hate their job. They hate the kids. They're miserable, but they've been there for 15 years. What are they going to do? You know, they're 37 years old now. And, mm -hmm. and that's where we've missed it as administrators. So, so I think that that first thing is to recognize that people are damaged and, and so it's my responsibility to go in and, and support them in that. 
I also love how the way you do it, it, it bypasses the whole excuse of the kids because they're always going to point to the kids and point to the parents. And you didn't even, you don't even have that argument. You, you just passed it right by and say, Hey, let's, let's go look at these people down here. And, and I love, you know, you, somebody can't fight with you if you don't fight. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And the, the third thing then is immediately you've set yourself up in a supportive um, situation. I'm again, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm going in your classroom to support you so that you can go do these things, which then starts to drive the partnership. And at the same time, you've given that person agency. And, and maybe one of the reasons that they're angry and hurt is they're fearful is because they've gone a while in their career and felt like they were all boxed in and not had that agency and not had that support. So you're hitting that. And then finally, I love the accountability. I mean, that's hard accountability. We're going to have the conversation, right? But that's where the growth is going to happen. So absolutely, look at that. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this is good. And, and I hope that we'll just keep coming back to this and I'll make sure that these five points are in the show notes. Um, so okay. people, after they listen, they can go back and, and look mm-hmm. at this because it really is almost a step-by-step um, process. It is. And, and you said something so key when you said hurt, damaged, and fearful. We, we have to make sure that we marry, particularly now that teachers are back after COVID and we're in that third iteration of what this is going to look like, that our educators are suffering from leadership PTSD. Like maybe they have tried and done and it's, they've just been slapped on the hand or they've been called out or written up. And if we don't help them, we're never going to see their best. This is a healing process that we all have gone through. And so when we recognize that, we can just be better leaders and supporters and partners. I love how you said that. Yeah. Thank you. So the other thing you talked about um, that we, we both get on our high horses about, I think, is, <laughs> is putting that urgent piece before what the purposeful piece. And um, I was with a group of APs um, yesterday, I think. And, and they, we were talking about how you get in and how you do really short targeted observations. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I said, how do I, how can I help you? And they said, we need, we need time management because, you know, we can't get in and, but it's not about managing your time. It's about managing your priorities. You're mm-hmm. never going to have enough time. You're never going to be able to manage your way into the classroom I think the challenge is to prioritize being in the classroom. So the getting into those classrooms, that comes first. Mm-hmm. All the time after that, you can manage. But if you start trying to manage your time instead of managing your priorities, it's it's not going to happen because the urgent stuff is just going to consume always, you. Always. And, and when you can manage and prioritize and you say as a team, an admin team, okay, we really want to focus on student engagement. And this is what it sounds like. This is what it looks like and feels like in our schools. And then you marry the observational protocol or the instructional walkthrough protocols with some of those phrases or some of those programs and initiatives. And then when you're only looking for that, that's how your team becomes a master of helping and coaching and instructional leadership versus being mediocre at all the things that everybody has to do. And you start to see those culture shifts. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And we talk a lot about A to B and, and that's Mm -hmm. one of the things too, is, is 
targeted action as opposed to throwing in big things. And I was kind of chuckling because you talked about education evolving, which is a big thing. But as we make that leap, we've got to be breaking it down and chunking it down into these Mm -hmm. really discrete components so that people can master one or two pieces and then move to the next one instead of being asked to kind of be mediocre at 10 things at the same time. Yes, absolutely. And and I think that that conversation along with that evolution means that as assistant principals and principals, you're talking about what are opportunities where our teachers have to productively fail. And so like asking the question to your principal or to your digital instructional facilitator or your counselor or your students and saying, what happens when a student in our building fails? Like what's the next response? What happens when an adult fails publicly in our school? Because there you can start to see, are we setting our students up to be like engineers where they're like, let me hurry up and fail and find 10,000 ways it doesn't work so I can get closer to the way that it does. Or is failure just have this huge negative connotations like this dark cloud that, oh no, I can't fail. Well, I don't know about you, but there's no administrator in the country or on the planet right now that can Google, how do we successfully make it through the pandemic as an administrator? Because nothing's <laughs> going to come up. So we're, we're all embracing that, but it, we have to model productive failure in order to get healthy um, exemplars of what that looks like. Okay. So how can we model productive failure? Okay. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> so I, I have a, um, uh, in my book, one of the things I talk about is the, I don't know. A lot of times our students have realized that if they, if they're asked a question, whether it's a content academic question or non-academic question, and they say, I don't know, that is going to get the adult to move on to the next thing. So we talk with leaders a lot of times about how to literally sit in the silence or sit in the space where the student doesn't know. That requires you to not live and take a residence in your office. Because when that child says, I don't know, that's your greatest opportunity to say, you know what, let me tell you something. I want to celebrate you because I saw what you did on the bus the other day. All the students were rowdy and you got them quieted down. You're such a leader. So it's not that I don't know, maybe you haven't been celebrated in this area, or you were the only one who knew all the fourth grade sight words and you're only in third grade. That's to be celebrated. When we model productive failure, we reposition adults and we reposition students to see their reality in terms of the ways they contribute to the community. That is what students are seeking. They're seeking their place. They're seeking their tribe. They're seeking seeking their group. They're seeking those people who are like-minded to them. And adults are the same way. So when we ostracize someone for not making the scores on the test. When those EVOS scores come out and people are just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't exceed growth. Maybe you didn't exceed growth, but there were 10 students in that one subgroup that we have been trying to move. How did you move those 10 students? And that requires us to be present. That requires us to take time and focus on, again, being productive versus just busy. Because if I'm looking at engagement, you just engage 10 more students in the ELA content area then everybody else, talk to me about your lesson plans. Talk to me about your strategy. Because if we sit in the punishment or if we sit in the failure forever, that's all people are going to know. Like reads like. But if I point you in a different direction, 
And I'm intentional about making you the expert on the ways that you won. And I share that with the community. You're like, okay, I didn't meet the mark, but they still need me here. And that's how we lower retention. And that's how we keep students connected to and engaged in schools. I think the, the other piece of that, that, that I hear in there is that if you haven't been successful at, at a task, Mm-hmm. But I can take you back to the other one where you have, right? And point that out. That's also, I'm also saying, you know, you didn't hit this one this time. I know you, but you, you're great on this thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the connection is, so I have confidence that you're going to get this, right? We can keep, come back and keep trying it again. Mm-hmm. Let's figure out what happened. And, and that's, let's build on it from there. But I have seen you be successful in this other arena. So I know mm-hmm. and trust that you can be successful in this one. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, you talked about courage too, that that conversation works for the non-academics. For instance, I had a conversation with a group of teachers one time and I said, there was a group of fourth grade girls. And when I say they ran the school, so this, this leadership team could not figure out what it was that was happening, right? They were getting written up for sucking through their teeth and rolling their eyes and, you know, doing all this social media stuff. So we asked the questions. Being courageous means asking the questions in a productive way. So I said, are there examples of adults who are consistently sucking through their teeth and rolling their eyes behind each other's back? Like, what is that? What's the culture? What do staff meetings look like? What are the teacher to teacher interactions? Can we do a walkthrough right now and just watch how adults talk to adults or how adults potentially ignore other adults or how adults miss opportunities to help adults? They are modeling what they're seeing. And if they're seeing it at home, that's one thing, but the only thing we can control is what's happening in terms of the interactions in this building. So let's make sure we shore that up before we say that it's the, it's the student's issue because that's a culture piece. So this can happen with academics, but it can also happen non-academically with how students show up in the world. Okay, so let's just have fun with this little situation. Okay. I, I send the kid to the office because they're not turning in their work or mm-hmm. I'm, I'm zeroing them out because they're late, right? They're failing my class. They do their work, but it's late a lot. And I just give them a zero whenever they turn in late work. And I'm always the person that you have to contact three different times to get my grades turned in on time. Mm. And they're always late. Mm. What does that conversation look like? Oh, goodness. That's a, that's a good one. So here's what I try to do. I always try to tie conversations back to the person. So there's several things I do to prep. One, I always make sure that I have that teacher's trend data with me, the benchmarks, all of that. But then the physically what I do whenever I have a crucial conversation, I always made sure that there was a sitting area in my office. It didn't matter if it was just two chairs pushed around another desk, but something come out from behind my desk and I go over and I sit with them automatically that lowers the anxiety and the frustration that I'm talking at you, but I'm working with you. So then we start to identify, let's look at your trends from over the past three years, or maybe it's a new teacher. Let's look at your benchmarks quarterly in terms of this particular student and the relationships. What are some opportunities we've had? Now, I want to remind you as a teacher, your students are losing instructional time every time they leave your classroom. So if we account for the fact that with four suspensions this year at three days each, that's 12 days times eight hours of lost instructional time. So I put all the data on the paper. 
Because a lot of times when you call teachers in for conversation of that nature, they're like, well, they were suspended. Well, well, you're right. So if I lost eight days of instruction, there's no way I could be the best that I could be as compared to my colleagues or my peers, right? So showing those them those ways. Another thing I would talk about with that particular teacher is I would say, let's say they, they were sending the student to the office for an attitude or cursing or whatnot or what have you. I would ask them point blank, have you made contact or done a home visit with that child to understand what the culture at the home looks like? Because more likely than not, the cuss words and the attitude they're learning that from home. But what you're asking me to do every time there's a problem is to send them back to the same place where they learn the bad behavior. So what I'm doing is I'm putting your problem on pause because in 72 hours, that baby is coming back to our classroom. So as a teacher, how can I partner with you to teach them a new skill, to teach them how to use their words, to teach them how to not use their hands and feet? to teach them conflict resolution. And I know you have a lot on your plate too, and I, but I know you're doing an ELA lesson on friendship. So maybe that child can become your reader or maybe that child can become your partner when it comes to modeling what that looks like in terms of theme and metacognition. So I'm gonna show you multiple ways to tick, 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 tick these things off, but keep that child connected, keep that child coming back and make sure that we don't sever the relationship. Because again, if I send the child home, we still have an issue when they come back. How about we do what we, are, what we are designed to do, which is to teach and teach them a new skill so they can stay in your community, in your classroom, and you're better for it. And now you know how to address that child more effectively. Yeah. And, and I think astute listeners are going to hear some patterns coming out yeah. right, in this podcast. And, and we go back when, when teachers treat kids poorly, um, mm-hmm. again, the teachers probably are angry, hurt, and fearful. And, and what you're doing consistently, I mean, uh, people out there imagine Mary as your principal and these conversations mm-hmm. that you've already heard in the ways in which you are building that community with teachers. And, and in, I think in many ways, you're, you're building that support and you're lowering those stress levels at the same time that you're raising accountability. And I think that's one of the keys, right? you're not letting people off the hook. You're actually increasing accountability for the way people behave and the way they act towards kids, but you're building a culture that really is about, we're going to get this done. We're going to get this done together. Not you're a bad teacher. Mm-hmm. And, and also um, when you're talking about really tying it back to, to learning and to days in the classroom, you've reminded me of something that I think I've heard every great principal that I've ever had a conversation with said Uh things that indicated their sense of urgency for instructional time. The Mm -hmm. best principles are always really laser focused on instructional time. Like we have to do everything we can to make sure we get the most instructional time, which means not kicking kids out of class, but also Mm -hmm. to make sure that we're getting the best instruction on that instructional time. There's just that urgency. When you think of great teachers, it's the same thing. Like guys, we don't have any time. We got to be focused and and we really got to get after it. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so that's just another thing I want to bring out to listeners to think about, are you as an assistant principal communicating consistently with kids, with parents, and with your teachers, Mm -hmm. that urgency and the critical importance of every minute of instructional time? 
Absolutely. It's imperative. And, you know, when we talk about just this new evolution, how many times do we give people permission? Because the master schedule, you know, when you become a principal, the one thing they talk about is master schedule, master schedule, but looking at the master schedule and saying, where are their pockets and gaps and divots and corners that I can shave off or think about differently so I can add some time back to instruction? That can look like anything from saying one of the things we did was um, one year into that school that we ended up turning around, the second grade and the third grade teachers kept saying, when they get to third grade, they just don't have it to pass the read to achieve or the benchmarks or whatnot. So we looked at the master schedule to ensure that our K-1, our two, three, and our four, five teachers had two hours of uninterrupted blocks together each week to plan together. We were able to do looking at student work processes to look at trend data across those two grade levels because you have students along the continuum. They may be in the teacher record for the third grade, but they have skills and proclivities for the fourth grade. But when you have those two teams working together for two hours of interrupted time, and what does that look like for an administrator? I had a conversation with my admin up at the front and I said, during this time, we protect it from parents. We protect it from our um, anybody being called out. I'm not going to be on the radio. I mean, listen, if it's an emergency, you know where to find me. But you have to put in the protocol if you're going to protect people's time. And you have to show them what that looks like and sounds like so that they can respond accordingly. And I never had a parent who argued with the principal or the teacher is where the children are and working on making things better for children. Never had a parent buck me on that, but you have to, you have to set it up. You have to set up those protocols to protect that time. Mm. So much good stuff here, Mary. Oh, I'm so glad. And, and I, I know I'm going to have you back probably multiple times if you're, <laughs> if you're willing. <laughs> I'd be so, honored. I, I want to start to wrap this up. I have three questions for you. And the first is what part of your own leadership are you still working on? Oh, I'm absolutely still working on understanding where we can find more pockets for educators to infuse creativity and not feel as if they're taking or besmirching anything that has to do with the end of the year assessments, because I know that has to happen. I, I understand and I get it. But the more people I talk to, whether it's teacher leaders, school leaders, district leaders, creativity is almost self-care. But when we suck that out of education, we don't find ways for people to be creative in whatever programming, pedagogy, whatever it is, then we're losing the essence of who we are. That's why we got into education, because we know how to do it differently. But sometimes the system isn't set up for that. So I'm totally working on ways where I can see it, where I can talk about it, what it looks like and feels like in this new ecosystem we're leading in. Okay. Again, so that's a second. We're gonna we're gonna revisit that, and I think okay. you and I are gonna have a conversation about realigning systems because that's a, another one of the big things, right? If if you're all about your purpose, then your structures, your resources, your people all need to be aligned to that purpose, and, mm-hmm. and it's really hard in education to keep that alignment. Absolutely. All right. So, if listeners could take just one just one thing away from today's podcast, what do you want them to really hold on to? Oh, I would definitely say that in order 
to understand where you want to become or how, how you want to become the, the educator that you've envisioned. You have to find the places and spaces where you're most present. And that's why I always tell people when you're interviewing, remember, yes, they're interviewing you, but you're interviewing them because your presence mentally is going to make the difference for a beginning teacher, or it's going to keep that veteran teacher cued in or in your presence as a parent and a community member is going to shift the conversation about what they say about your school or a child's life may be dependent on it because I could have ignored that screen and been like, it's four o'clock. I'm, I'm going home. But there was something in me that said, I can't ignore it because that is literally why I got into this space. So making sure that we embrace that facet is going to help us become not only better educators, but present educators. And mastering that helps you in any room you walk into. Be present. Be present. <laughs> and, and when you are purposeful, you're present. You can't. Exactly. Those two go hand in hand. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Anything else that you want to share? I am just, when I say to all of the assistant principals who are listening, I'm so excited that you're not only working on and listening to and gleaning what it's like to lead in this ecosystem. We absolutely need you. There is a space for you, your voice and your gifts and your skills. Because when it comes to the assistant principal role, what we don't understand is that things hit the leader first. But that close second and sometimes the saving grace or that safety net is you. And by you doing everything that you can to ensure that when you show up, you're your best self, we are literally shifting the trajectory for what 22nd century education is going to look like. So thank you. Yay. (laughs) I love to end it inspiring. Um, So, and, and you talk about voice and I know you have a big voice. And I mean that in a positive way, right? You've got a lot going on. So do you just want to share any, any of your projects or anything with your listeners Mm -hmm. or with our listeners and how they can, how can they get more of you? Absolutely. So one of the biggest things that I've found over the past couple of years is that social impact is huge. People don't teach and live and work in silos. So I'm also an author. I call myself an edupreneur. I'm the CEO and founder of The Limitless Leader and where we help individuals really get rid of the limited potentials and the limited things that they've heard maybe growing up or during their professional community. And we help them tap into their limitless potential. But you can learn more at www.bealimitlessleader.com. And then my book, The One Minute Meeting, which is a strategy where I meet with every child for one minute, every child in the school and ask them three important questions. You can, it's available on Amazon. Wow. Awesome. Um, <laughs> and I will put links to that too, in the show notes, if people want to download that. Uh, and can they, is there an email that people can reach? Absolutely. At? Absolutely. Mary at the limitless lady.com. All right. Ah, so excited. <laughs> Mary, this has been great. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. All right. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and rate this podcast. I'm always trying to improve the show. So if you have feedback for me, email me at frederick at frederickbuskey.com. If you'd like more content tailored towards the needs of assistant principals, you can head over to my website at frederickbuskey.com. That wraps up today's show. I'm Frederick Buskey, and I hope you'll join me next time for the assistant principal podcast.